My name is Daisha Clay. I'm the audio librarian here at Classical 91.7. While I'm a real librarian, I have a deep, dark secret. I know very little about classical music. I grew up listening to rock. And I know something about jazz. But when it comes to classical... But I really want to learn. So... Every week on this show, a classical music expert will give me a piece of classical music they think I should know, and then we'll discuss it. Come learn with me in the Classical Classroom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Classical Classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and here with me today is Pierre Jalbert, who is a composer and whose name is not pronounced Jalbert. Among others, he has won the Rome Prize and the BBC Master Prize. He studied under George Crumb while earning his PhD at the University of Pennsylvania. His work has been played by symphonies and chamber music groups across the nation and the world. Currently, uh, he's professor of composition and theory at Rice University's Shepherd School of Music, and he's on the artistic board of the Houston-based contemporary chamber music ensemble, Musica. Pierre, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So what are you going to be teaching me about today? Well, today I thought I'd show you a couple of works, which I like to think of, at least for me, as life-changing works, life-changing pieces of music. Mm-hmm. You know, every once in a while in your life, you run into a piece of music that changes the way you think about music, that uh-huh. just, for some reason, amazes you, and you just want to hear it again and again and figure out what it is about that piece that affected you so much. Mm -hmm. And I can remember two specific instances, at least for me. When I was a teenager, I ran across these two pieces of music, which remain with me to this day. One of the pieces is the Ravel String Quartet. Mm -hmm. And the way I ran into that piece is I was at a youth orchestra camp in which I played, and they were showing a documentary on the Emerson String Quartet. Uh And they start playing this piece, and I I had no idea what this was. It was this sort of visceral, rhythmically energetic piece that I was just amazed by. And later on, of course, I found out it was the last movement of the Ravel String Quartet. Uh And actually... Many years later, it turns out I wrote a piece for the Emerson String Quartet and got to know them a bit. So it kind of came full circle. That was one of the pieces. Uh And the second one was also while I was a teenager, I first heard the music of George Crumb, Mm -hmm. Black Angels, which was also for String Quartet, Mm -hmm. plus a variety of percussion instruments that that he has the, the members play. And eventually later on, uh, as a graduate student, I went to study with George Crumb. Yeah. So again, that came full circle. So these pieces really changed my life in in many, many ways. Wow. Like in really concrete ways. I mean, like you wind up, you hear a piece that Emerson is playing, you wind up composing for them later, and then you actually wind up studying under George Crumb. Wow. Now, when you say that the pieces changed your life, other than in these very sort of concrete, you know, guiding the path of your life sort of way, do you mean that they changed your life creatively, spiritually? I mean, like, because when you say, like, a piece of music changed my life, 
you know, you're a composer. And so I'm thinking, like, did it, you know, send you down a creative path? Now, when a piece of music changes my life, it's very different because I am not a composer. And so that that sentence means something very different for me. Yeah, I think mostly it's about the the creative path, I think. Um, But mostly... I think I had never heard music like that before. I didn't know music like that was possible, and, and I didn't know it would affect me in, in in that particular way. And I wanted to see how it was put together, and it, it just opened up new vistas in my own creativity uh-huh. that I don't think would have been opened if I hadn't heard those pieces. Okay. You know, I always tell my own students, you know, the old saying, you are what you eat. Uh-huh. Well, you as a composer, you are what you hear. You uh-huh. are what you've been exposed to. Yeah, I would contend that that's true for for anybody. You know, sure. I mean, because sure. the music that we love makes up the soundtrack of our lives. You know, in our heads as we're going through our day. Absolutely. You know, yeah. and and so yeah. 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 So at least for the Ravel, there were many things about it that that just struck me. One was just the the rhythmic aspect of it. Yeah. And that really visceral aspect of it. Later on, I sort of went back, you know, this is much later, and sort of tried to see what Ravel was doing in this piece. I'm talking specifically about the fourth movement, Uh the last movement of the piece. First of all, it's very fast, but it's in an asymmetrical meter. That is, it's in five. Many of the traditional pieces we know, and most popular music tends to be in two or three or four. Yeah. Uh, like a waltz is in three. Most people would recognize that. Mm-hmm. So this piece was a little unusual, and that's what struck me about it as being different. It's in five. So after every fifth beat, you get this strong beat. So it's a one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five. And the first motive of this last movement does exactly that. It sounds like this. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five. Yeah. Um, and it's very chromatic, which means that there's not a lot of space in between the notes. If I play a chromatic scale, it's uh, there are no notes in between on the keyboard. That's a chromatic scale as okay. opposed to a, you know, a major scale. The one we're used to hearing right. more often. Yeah. <laughs> And that rhythm is just incessant throughout this whole thing, the, mm-hmm. that that five. And so he's using that um, chromaticism and and repeating this, this five-note pattern. Mm-hmm. And then taking what we call major triads, one of the building blocks of music. Mm-hmm. It's a major triad. Yeah. And building triads around this motive in different ways. Sometimes they're just one step apart. So you get this. And at other times, they might be uh, a larger interval apart, a third apart. So here's a third. It's a minor third. But He's taking these triads, like I said, a minor third apart. Mm-hmm. It has, that has a certain sound to it. Mm-hmm. And within those, um, 
You also have this relationship of an even larger interval called the tritone, mm-hmm. uh, which sometimes called the devil's yeah. interval in music. <laughs> That's <laughs> I don't right. Know if you've ever heard that before, but it's this interval. Yeah. And if you take a major triad built on each one of those. Um, or or these two. Those are a tritone apart, and you'll hear that in the Ravel as well. Those are all those same uh, triads. Uh, and then you get this. So he's basically messing around with these chromatic relationships mm-hmm. between the third and the tritone. When when did he live? Well, this piece is from the very beginning of the 20th century. So this is from 1904. Okay. He wrote it in 1903. It was premiered in 1904 when he was only 28 years old. Wow. Of course, I didn't. When I first heard this, I didn't know any of this. I just heard a right. piece that was sounded as great as rock and roll, you know, right. to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And here's this motive that keeps keeps on going throughout this whole opening. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. Here's that tritone relationship. All of these chords, a minor third apart. And then we move into a a new section. Wow, that is awesome. (laughs) I really like that. One of the other things that really got me and that I didn't know, know about at the time was, you know, if you just look at the opening and I played on the keyboard. What the strings actually do that's a little extra than that is they're playing two notes for every one note I just played. So they're actually playing. Yeah. But of course you can't, you just can't play it that fast on the keyboard, whereas bowing the bow back and forth on the string really fast Mm -hmm. is something very characteristic of of string instruments. Mm -hmm. And that's another, it's called a, a measured tremolo. That's another thing that really got me about this piece. It just has uh, so much energy in the yeah. in the bowing. But when you first heard it, it was just like you said, like this music is just so exciting. Yeah. And it wasn't until later, until you started picking it apart, that you found out all of these things. And that is the difference between us. Because when I hear a good piece of music, I'm just like, that is a great piece of music. I am inspired now. And you're like, I must see how this works. (laughs) Why do I love it? But why? Yeah. Well, and and at a certain point, as a composer, when you you have a lot of experience hearing a lot of different things, you can sort of do a lot of this by ear. Yeah. You know, you've had the experience of knowing how the instruments work and Uh and such. Well, okay. So... You said that the the Ravel inspired you. Can you show me like an example in your in your own work? Can we hear one where this kind of shows up in some way? Sure. There's a piece, a string quartet of mine called Icefield Sonnets, uh, and actually 
in the third movement, there's a lot of this measured tremolo kind of effect uh-huh. I was just talking about with the strings moving rapidly uh-huh. uh, or the bow moving rapidly across the strings. I think you'll hear some similarity in the way that those tremolos in the strings work. Okay. You get this acceleration into the measured tremolos. Here we go. So, so this piece, uh, to me, it's all about this visceral energy. Yeah. Um, and the Icefield Sonnet's actually um, the impression of of a winter scene, but the cold of a winter scene, and the sort of shivering and um, of yeah. that is is, not is the, somehow represented in the music. Okay, so not like a Courier and I have sort of you know winter scene of a <laughs> warm home, but more of a. Oh my God, <laughs> Fargo, North Dakota, yeah. cold. Yeah, more windswept, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the crumb. What's the story behind that? Like, how did how did it affect you? Well, this is Black Angels, and actually. I think I heard this for the first time in in college when I was a freshman. I wasn't quite sure about it at first, but it really grew on me the more I heard it. Mm-hmm. And the the section especially that affected me is called God Music. It was, was written in 1970 during the Vietnam War and actually has all of the symbolism in it. Talk about the, the devil's interval of the, of the tritone. The, sort yeah. of the main harmony in this is a fifth plus a tritone. Whoa. And it has a lot of visceral, dark kind of music. Yeah. And then the god music is a complete contrast to that in which he asked the string players, at least some of them, to play crystal goblets, to bow crystal goblets. So that creates this really ethereal sound. And they use basically the same uh, similar kinds of relationships that we saw in the Ravel, that is major triads, mm-hmm. uh, a tritone apart. Mm-hmm. And above this, and, and these are played on these um, crystal glasses, like I said, creating this ethereal sound. And then above this, you have just this floating cello melody. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just really long, drawn-out, gorgeous and to me, the, the music just had this sense of timelessness. Yeah. 
you know, this sense of infinity uh-huh. that and just sounded different from anything I'd ever heard before. Yeah. So that that exactly this sense of timelessness is what mm-hmm. really uh, affected me. Okay. I, the so the the first piece the Ravel you had a, a whoa moment where you you know you just happened to hear it and it struck you. This one was more of a slow burn. And yeah. do you remember when you it finally grabbed you when you finally were like ah oh, like this is you know the the moment that it sort of really impacted you. I, I think it was just after, well, it really impacted me the first time I heard it, okay. and it was on a recording. It wasn't live. Yeah. Actually, I didn't hear it live for many, many years, because it's, it's hard to put together. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes a lot from the quartet, but it also takes a lot of extra percussion instruments <laughs> that yeah. they have to play, and they have to sort of figure out how to do it all. I think after that first hearing, I just, from time to time, I would go back and listen again, and it, it just totally made sense after a while it's one of those pieces that there's something about it you're not quite sure at first you have to hear it again or a few Mm -hmm. times in order to really for it to sink in but this section of music just hit me right off the bat I kept wanting to ask you questions, but I didn't want to interrupt the music. That was so cool. <laughs> uh, they're actually bowing the crystal glasses here, yeah. but uh, Crum often, and other composers too, sometimes call for um, crystal glasses, you know, as you rub your finger around the around top the rim, and you get yeah. this this, uh, this really nice ethereal sound. Happen- mm-hmm. Later, you know, I found out that it was in- sort of invented by Benjamin Franklin. The really? glass harmonica. He made an instrument out of that. Yeah. <laughs> Neat. <laughs> and Mozart actually wrote a piece for it, <laughs> for the glass harmonica. That's... But... Uh, what, I mean, you know. what made George Crumb think about uh, bowing a, well, a glass? Well, he, he loves to do extended techniques beyond the instrument. For the timbral possibilities, I mean, for him, I think the the quality of the sound, timbral, uh, yeah, timbre, the, the the kind of sound it makes okay. is, is really the kind of color it has as a sound right, is really right. important. Yeah, yeah. but the, to me, the, it's it's not just the timbre; it's the music itself. To uh-huh. me, it was so um, inspiring. What is going on there? Since you, I know you've you've taken this piece apart. What is going on there when the the goblets that are being bowed kind of clash with the other 
strings. Can you talk about what how that works musically? I'm not sure even how to ask that question, but how how does that how is that dissonance taking place? What's the what's the chord behind it? What's the Okay, well sometimes yeah. you get pure triads like the very first chord. Uh-huh. But then he'll surround that once in a while with a more dissonant uh, it's not even a triad. It's it's some other kind of cluster of notes. Yeah. That's not consonant. You know, that's, yeah. that's that's more dissonant. So he'll he'll neighbor it neighbor the triad with this. Mm-hmm. So you hear that sometimes, but then you, very often you'll get these triads a tritone apart. And again, you might color that with another dissonant uh-huh. uh, chord going back to the triad. So it's it's yeah. this constant balance of consonants, dissonance. Uh-huh. Yeah, that I noticed that it was, I went from feeling at ease to feeling disturbed, back to feeling at ease yeah. <laughs> throughout the piece. <laughs> That's basically what this passage does, I think. You yeah. know, it all sort of comes to a nice conclusion on that high B mm-hmm. and when we're back in it's basically B major mm-hmm. you know with all of these intervening dissonances in between but mm-hmm. it's basically B major so talk about how this piece has shown up in your work well um, in many ways uh, but I think this sense of suspended time mm-hmm. is something uh, that's that's been a constant throughout my my music not in not in every piece I write obviously but in especially in contrasting movements to some of that faster music we heard mm-hmm. earlier if I can show you an example from my own yes um, the second movement of my piece visual abstract is called Dome of Heaven and it's basically for an ensemble of six musicians, mm-hmm. flute, clarinet, violin, cello, piano, and percussion. Mm-hmm. And basically the opening section has a pedal tone that is a, almost like a drone yeah. that keeps going throughout the whole section. And, and the, the piano is constantly uh, playing these bell-like sounds over these harmonics held, uh, these high ethereal tones held in the strings. Mm-hmm. And then within that, you get the flute and the clarinet coming out within without of the texture. The clarinet. And then eventually, they, the, both the flute and clarinet come together uh, in this very long, strung-out melody. thematically like i noticed the names of your 
pieces that I was reading about and the, that you've talked about are they're really interesting like the the spiritual nature of them mm-hmm. the and the the words that you choose to use in the titles of your pieces and then I notice that about um, crumbs as well not necessarily in the same way but like that I mean black angels that's the coolest name for a piece of classical music <laughs> that I've ever heard like that's, yeah. and then and then god music I mean that's neat so is there a tie for you sure and, and this piece the title Dome of Heaven came from my the time I spent in Rome mm-hmm. and Rome has like 900 churches and they all have <laughs> domes <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and they're just these incredible uh, artworks in their own right. Mm-hmm. This particular piece was inspired by this dome, which was designed by Borromini. Mm-hmm. And it was the, the church of St. Francis at the Four Fountains. And it's an all-white interior, as many of Borromini's churches are. But if you look up into the dome, it has these geometric shapes and as they get closer and closer to the apex, they get smaller and smaller. So the dome actually looks, if you're inside looking up, it looks much bigger than it actually is. Uh-huh. And it just feels like it it recedes into infinity. Yeah. And that, this all has to do with the sense of spiritualness, of timelessness, of infinity. And so that's what, that's sort of what inspired this particular movement. When you heard Crumb, did it give you the permission or the idea that you could use music as a, a way to um, explore the spiritual? Or is that something that you already had inside I think of that, you? Yeah, I think I, I sort of grew up with that. Yeah. And it, it was always part of my music and I think always will be. It's yeah. just that idea of trying to capture that presence of especially that if you can imagine yourself hearing something it could be just about any type of music in a cathedral mm-hmm. with that really large reverberation time yeah and that sense of space yeah so with this piece uh, it's all of that you yeah. know trying to create all of that well pierre jalbert thank you so much for coming in today this has been really cool you've turned me on to some of the most awesome music that I've heard on the show so far. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. That about does it for this episode of Classical Classroom. For more Classroom, go to houstonpublicmedia.org backslash classroom. There you can find links to the myriad ways to hear our shows and to connect with us, including SoundCloud, Stitcher, Twitter. On Twitter, you can follow me. I'm at ccdasha, or you can follow producer Todd. He's at cctoddh. You should really consider following Todd. I don't think he has a lot of followers, and he's really sad about it. (laughs) Make sure to rate us and review us. Um, You can also send me an email at dclay at houstonpublicmedia.org. Thanks today to producer Todd Toots-Holslander for twiddling knobs. Thanks to the program director, Sinjin Flynn, for his killer dancing skills. Thanks to Pierre Jalbert, not Jalbert, for being here today. Thanks to me for saying words. But mostly, thanks to you listeners for listening. We'll catch you next time.